0: And may God bless his word to us. So, we live, don't we, in a world which is apparently more connected than it's ever been. We've got Facebook, Twitter, email, but it's possible, isn't it, to have a Facebook, which is full of friends, and to have an address book, which is bursting with contacts, but still to feel desperately alone. We might have a whole uh, series of voicemails on our phones, but we're just waiting for that one person that we really want to hear from. But friendship itself in our society is something which is increasingly devalued. It's not something that society views as particularly important. After all, if you think about it, friendship is not really necessary from, according to the human worldview, from an evolutionary or a biological point of view. You don't need friends for the human race to survive. It will continue to flourish um, and and to grow despite that. And C.S. Lewis um, said this. He said, To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it, it is something quite marginal not a main course in life's banquet a diversion something that fills up the chinks of one's time how has this come about few value it because few experience it we can live and breed without friendship the species biologically considered has no need of it some may even dislike and distrust it. So we live in a society where people feel increasingly alone and friendship itself is devalued. It's viewed with suspicion. But the Bible is clear that friendship is essential for human flourishing. Do you remember God in the Garden of Eden? He said, It is good for man not to be alone. And obviously, in that context, he was talking about marriage. But he wasn't only talking about marriage. He was saying something very fundamental about humanity. And what he was saying is that companionship or friendship is as vital to us as food or drink. We need friendship. But I've got another question for you this morning. What would a real friend look like? What is a portrait of a real friend? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's what we're going to look at this morning in these few verses. So Paul talks about two of his good friends in these verses. Two guys. um, And we learn from them about what the essence of a friend really is. Person number one is Timothy. We learn about Timothy. So we know that um, Timothy knew Paul since being a teenager. He met Paul on one of his mission, missionary trips um, in Derby and Lystra. He was the son of a Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek, a pagan. Despite the fact that his father was a pagan, We know that Timothy knew the Scriptures. He was well-versed in the Scriptures um, because he learnt them from his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. He worked with Paul, establishing churches um, at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, and he looked after Paul while he was imprisoned. And there was a very close bond between Paul and Timothy. Um, Timothy was mentioned in six of Paul's epistles, and when um, Timothy—sorry, when Paul, in fact, um, was dying, he had a dying wish to have Timothy at his side. It was Timothy he wanted there, and in 2 Timothy he says, "Be diligent to come to me quickly." He wanted Timothy there by his side. So much did the apostle Paul value his friend Timothy. But the second person we come across in these verses is Epaphroditus. And the name Epaphroditus, he had been devoted to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love and also the patron of gamblers. Um, (laughs) But Epaphroditus, true to his name... He had the character of a gambler. He was willing to risk his life in order to take the gift that the Philippian church had prepared to Paul in Rome. And when he got to Rome, he worked so hard there for the gospel that he succumbed to a life-threatening illness um, from which he eventually did recover in the end and then he returned to Rome. But both these men are exceptional examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus, of what a good friend is. And I just want to look very, this, very briefly this morning at some of those qualities in these verses. So they display these qualities, but often the things that they display are in very, very short supply. The first thing that they showed was a rare concern. We see in verse 20, Paul says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Do you sometimes feel that finding someone who really cares is like finding a needle in a haystack? Do you sometimes feel that? Not only can it be a cold, hard world out there, but sadly, unfortunately, even in the church, it can feel like a cold, hard church at times. I'm not talking about our church specifically, but the church per se. It can feel like a cold, hard church. The bottom line is, you can often number the friends who really do care on one hand. Who's really there for you? When the going gets tough. Who will answer that late night call when you're vulnerable and distressed? Who cares enough to ask how you are and really mean it? Who cares enough to listen to your answer? Who will really pray for you in the comfort of their own home when the doors are closed and there's no one to see you praying for them? Plenty of us can appear caring on a Sunday morning, but who's really there when you need it during the week? They're uncomfortable questions, aren't they? And we ask them about who's there for us, who cares for us in that way. But the other question is equally uncomfortable, who do we care about for in that way? It says in Romans, it says, let love be without hypocrisy let love be without hypocrisy in other words let your declarations of how much you love people and how much you're there for people be backed up by actions that's what paul says let love be without hypocrisy and that's what that's the quality that paul found in timothy it says i don't know anyone else like this guy he sincerely cares for your state, He has that rare concern. And the Bible says that it's not just having that rare concern, but it's when that concern is backed up by action. That's the only way we can know that that concern is genuine or real. It says in 1 John verse 3, it says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Indeed and in truth. A rare concern, a rare concern. That's the first thing we see in verse 20. But the second thing we see in uh, verse 21, Paul says here, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. So Timothy's actions were based on a genuine concern for Jesus' interests and by implication not only of Jesus' interests but of these people themselves. So often our friendships are based, aren't they, at least partly or sometimes wholly on what we can obtain for ourselves. I don't know whether you like to network. Have you networked with anyone recently? I go on these, I, I'm terrible, really. we go on these um, sort of medical educational things and various other things, and I love to network with people. Oh, you're at such and such a practice, and you're like, oh, good, how's it going? Oh, great. Um, <laughs> but we love to network with people, don't we? And in all sorts of, of, of lines of life, we network with people. Um, but who are we networking with? I wonder, what kind of people are you networking with? The homeless? The outcast? The unpopular? The uninspiring? The dull? Are you networking with those sorts of people? Or are you trying to seek Jesus' interests and people who you can genuinely encourage? What is the focus? Of your social efforts? Why are you putting the social energy where you're putting it? It's a penetrating question. Are you basically trying to boost your own? Am I basically, I'm not speaking just to you, am I basically doing that? Are we basically looking for ways to boost our own prestige? Or are we like Timothy, who says, who Paul says, He didn't seek his own, but he sought the things which were of Christ Jesus. Who did you last invite round for a meal? Or who did you last arrange to meet up with um, at church or generally for coffee? Who was it? Was it someone you wanted to network with or someone you wanted something from? Jesus has a few words to say about this in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus says... When you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Invite the poor, the lame, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. That's what Timothy did. He looked for the interests of Jesus. He looked for the interests of Jesus. So, a rare concern, a rare priority, And now a rare character, that's the third thing, a rare character in verse 22. It says here, but you know his proven character as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. He was diligent in serving with Paul, his spiritual father, in the gospel. I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to cajole someone to doing something to help you, and it's clear that they don't really want to be there. What they tend to do is they get there as late as humanly possible, they leave as early as humanly possible, and whilst they're there, they do as little as humanly possible. And so, in the end, you sometimes think to yourself, well, maybe I wish that I hadn't asked them to do that. We've probably all been in situations like that at work or otherwise. But on the other hand, have you ever seen a child um, when maybe their father or their mother asks them to do something like, I don't know, help me build a shed or something, <laughs> um, and that little child puts every last ounce of effort into that task just because they want to see the joy of their parent? When I was growing up, I don't know, we lived in the countryside, and um, for me, we seemed to be forever, or my dad seemed to be forever, chopping up wood um, and and uh, using a chainsaw and, and, and logging, and we'd all, as children, have to help with this process, um, but actually, there was a delight in doing that, because... You'd know you'd, you'd help, you know, put all these logs there, and you'd know that he'd be really delighted. Um, and, and you'd see that response of your father, and you'd know that he, he delighted in you doing that. And you took a pleasure as a child in doing that. And you know, Timothy was like that with Paul, his spiritual father. He, he wasn't like a surly teenager who didn't really want to be there at all, but he delighted in serving. He delighted in serving with him in the gospel and he took a great joy in doing that. There was this childlike eagerness as he served with him. So a rare concern, a rare concern is the third thing. Um, But then we go on and we look at Epaphroditus now and we just look at a few brief points from Epaphroditus. And it says in verse 25, I considered it Necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. One thing particularly strikes me in that list there, and that is fellow soldier. You know, there are a few bonds formed between people, like the bonds that are formed when you're on the front line, facing battle. There are few bonds like that. Some soldiers struggle when they come back to normal civilian life because the intensity of the relationship that they've experienced being on the front line, they feel the loss of that. They get back into normal society and they realise how detached, in comparison, normal society is. And they feel the loss of that camaraderie. It's that camaraderie that causes one soldier to fling himself onto a grenade for the sake of the rest of his battalion. That kind of camaraderie. And that was the camaraderie that Epaphroditus experienced with Paul. Camaraderie. A rare camaraderie. But also he describes himself there as a fellow worker, working together for the gospel, for the common aim. Do you remember the sprinter? Do you remember the, the video, the YouTube video there was of that sprinter? And he was lagging behind um, when he was running, and his brother was a sprinter as well. And he kind of pushed him. He, he, he deliberately kind of lost his own place in the race, and he pushed his brother through the, the finish line. I don't know whether you saw that, um, that video, but it was really quite moving. And that's what we're called to be as Christians. We're called to be those who push, um, our brothers and sisters forward along the front line. Even if that means that maybe we take a few steps back, we push them along the front line. And um, Paul says um, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. That's what we should be doing, fellow workers, working together for the gospel, comforting the faint-hearted and upholding the the weak. Upholding the weak. So fellow soldiers, fellow workers. But now verse 26, we see something else about Epaphroditus. We see something quite interesting about him. It says here, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. And what we learn about here is that Epaphroditus had a rare response to suffering. A rare response to suffering. When most of us suffer, we focus inward. When I have, which is natural, when I have a cold, which is normally man flu, then I focus inward. I sort of wrap myself up and I don't cope very well and we, we lick our own wounds and we focus inward. During a long day at my work in general practice, I'm mainly hearing about how people's illnesses and sicknesses affect them from their angle. And that's quite natural. I I would do that, you would do that. That is a normal, um, probably healthy response to do. But what we see here is something quite supernatural. We see something quite out of the ordinary. We see that Epaphroditus, he's worked himself into the ground for the work of Christ, and we see that he's sick almost unto death. So he he effectively has what appears to be a terminal illness. But rather than focusing on himself, he's more concerned about the plight of the Philippians, because he says here he was distressed, Epaphroditus was distressed when you had heard that he was sick. He was more concerned about the effect that his illness had. He was more distressed by that than he was distressed about his own illness. So Epaphroditus' true colours come out here. It's very easy to feign a concern for others. It's not difficult to do. But when we're really crushed in life, what comes out of us? Is it an overwhelming self concern or is it mainly a concern for others? Jesus said in Luke, He said, A good man, a good man, out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you're crushed, In your life, when you're crushed and ground this week, what's coming out from inside? What's coming out? What's coming out of my life from inside when we're crushed and when we're ground? So, Epaphroditus, because his heart was filled with the good treasure of love and concern for the Philippians, when he was crushed, that was what came out. When he met his ultimate test, that's what came out. And I pray that that will come out of our hearts too. But also um, in verse 30, and uh, this is sort of my concluding uh, rare thing about the kind of friendship we see here. Um, In verse 30 it says, or the verse before it says, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So our natural inbuilt desire is for self-preservation. It's the, it's the avoidance of risk. Um, I'll let you into a secret. I'm not terribly keen on flying, which I'm trying to address. Um, my main concern is probably that the plane may crash. Um, <laughs> um, and, I hope, and I hope that it doesn't. But we all have this natural inbuilt concern that we, don't, that we don't want to risk our own, our own well-being, do we, in any way. That's quite a natural thing. But you know what with Epaphroditus? He was willing to risk his own life and, and health to help his friend Paul. It says not regarding his life. He, away, he flung away his life carelessly if only Paul could be helped and if only Jesus could be magnified more. That's what Paul did. But all true friendship involves a risk, doesn't it? All friendship at any level involves a risk. Not necessarily the risk of you know, giving up our lives as such for anyone else, but maybe it's the, just the risk of allowing ourselves to be truly vulnerable with someone else. Allowing somebody else to really see us as we really are and being willing to risk the rejection of them seeing us as we really are. You know, Jesus took risks in his friendships. He risked betrayal. In fact, he was betrayed in the end by his closest friend, one of his closest friends, Judas. He was betrayed in the end. But as friends of Jesus, we'll often be called upon to risk our lives for his sake and for his ministry. Um, It says in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So Epaphroditus had found out that true friendship and true life could only be had by being prepared to risk his life. And it's as we do the same that we will discover that true life and that true friendship. So these are the marks. They're the rare marks of a true friend. That rare concern, that rare priority. That rare concern of people who genuinely care deeply and show it in practical ways. That rare priority of seeking the good of another um, rather than their own advantage. Friends who have that rare character of working diligently and eagerly for others. Friends with that rare camaraderie that binds soldiers so closely together on the battlefield. Friends with that rare response to suffering, whose chief concern is the effect it has on others. Friends who have that rare approach to risk, who are willing to put everything on the line for the sake of love. But the trouble is that most of the friends who perfectly embody these characteristics are not only rare, but almost impossible to find. Not just rare but really impossible to find. But I want to say to you now, the Bible says that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend today that sticks closer than a brother. And I want to tell you today that the name of that friend is Jesus. Amen. The name of that friend is Jesus. He has that rare concern He deeply cares for his friends. He has that rare priority where he solely seeks the good of another. He has that rare quality of diligently working for others as the divine Son of God for the delight of his Father. He has that rare approach to suffering where his chief concern was the impact it would have on us. He has that rare approach where he was willing to risk everything for the sake of those he loved. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. And what does he command us? This perfect friend, what does he command us? It says, this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment.